0: brought he brought patty smith here like before like you know when she just she played in a little club the long branch yeah. down on san pablo avenue this is probably in the 70s somewhere mm-hmm. mid maybe 75 76 yeah somewhere around in there around yeah. the
1: time her first album came out maybe yes okay. and
0: she had um was before the al- right before the album came out
1: okay cuz she she actually did I didn't know she toured here before the album mm-hmm. came out. I know in New York she was performing for like at least a year on music, and she was doing poetry before that. Yeah. She was doing poetry like five years before um, she started doing music.
0: E. E. D. No, D. E. D. Oh, Eddie Money opened for her okay. at the Long Branch <laughs> with his brother playing guitar with him. That was the opening act. <laughs> and <laughs> John Cale um, played in her band yeah. with her. Yeah,
1: I have um, a bootleg. Well, I have a few bootlegs from that time, but one especially yes. from the Roxy, where they play My Generation at the end. Yes. And he, she even says John Cale on bass. Yes.
0: Yeah. I we just,
1: ha- yeah, just wish that I'd been able to... What?
0: Sorry? I don't know if that's the one we have. We well, have it's, a bootleg, but it's there's out, probably a lot of them.
1: Is, is it a re, really good sound? Yeah. Yeah, it's probably the one from the Roxy. Um, it also has Louie Louie. Yes. And Pia uh-huh. Blue Eyes. Yes. yes, Yeah. Yeah. And Iggy Pop comes up sta- mm. on stage for a second. and. I
0: don't remember the Iggy Pop part. I do remember her mm. introducing John Cale, though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we... Were. B, Blown away. Mm. Yeah. We were blown away by her. Mm. Hadn't ever seen anything like it. And mm. were pretty impressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. She. Was. D I D O D.O. D o down. Down. In. On the s stage mm. like on down lying on mm. the stage, singing, lying on the stage and stuff like that, which at that mm. point we had not seen that before mm. around here <laughs> <laughs> didn't any money do that <laughs> no, any money <laughs> didn't do that <laughs>
1: mm. one tick to paradise.
0: Mm. Mm. Mm then there this was before one one ticket to paradise okay yeah.
1: well he was he living in oakland i think mm-hmm. he was in the east in so. right yeah
0: i thought he was local right at the point we saw him a c o p a car yeah yeah that's right <laughs> and then she and then she m and then he did a p l a a play a C, T, A, C, R, across the street from the Mabuhay. Okay. <laughs> when, where we were. This was during when we were performing at the Mabuhay. We, were d- we did a show at the Mabuhay for um, mm-hmm. three and a half years, the Outrageous Beauty Review. It was like very popular. Early, it was the early show to the punk bands on Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. And so Eddie Money was doing a play across the street from that during that period.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> like you... P U N Punk Don't Like you punks don't like you punk? No. <laughs> like was it like? Mm. Yeah. You like you I <laughs> don't L K l o love like you i don't love p you punk <laughs> but right um i i am c o n Connected to the punk scene mm-hmm. because we did that show mm-hmm. during that period when it's kind of like the heyday of the punk scene is in, in San Francisco, from like seventy, I think from seventy eight for three and a half years. So we opened for all the big punk bands. It's all the
1: and you probably saw a lot of the locals like mm-hmm. with the nuns and right they the all played
0: the same nights we played mm-hmm. yes.
1: Do you know about um, this exhibit at the San Francisco Library of photos from that time?
0: I'm not sure that we do.
1: Um, They had, in association with that, they had all these films that Target Video made. Uh Uh-huh. I I don't think many, if any, were at the Mubu Haywood. It was exactly those bands. Yeah. um, Yeah. Some of which I had never heard of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mm-hmm. It was fun to look at, but the sound was uniformly bad. terrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the vocals. That
0: is the Mabuhe. That was pretty standard. Standard <laughs> sound of the Mabuhe. Yeah. You? Were in PHI Philadelphia then?
1: Yeah, Um, I would have been in uh, finishing high school and starting college.
0: (laughs) Make you feel old. and no Mm -hmm. P Mm -hmm. U punk Mm
2: -hmm.
0: no punk scene in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. is that true?
1: There was a little do you mean as far as like bands coming through Mm -hmm. or original groups there or both?
0: Both yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Well some of the bands came through but I was it's hard for... I know it was different in the Bay Area. I heard very, very little on the radio mm. because it just very little was played. Patty Smith was played a little, but she wasn't considered like x-ray specs mm. or something. And there was probably a little being played on college stations, but even though I only lived 10 miles from the center of Philadelphia, I couldn't get those stations because the signal mm. was too weak, and then, of course, there was no Internet. Mm. So... I read about bands like even the Clash. I read about the. I think I heard like one song before I went mm-hmm. to college. X-Ray Specs. I mean, uh, in Trouser Press, you'd read in the fine print. Mm-hmm. You, you never heard them until I was a DJ in college radio. I never heard most of this stuff. Most, even most of the '60s stuff I write about, besides the hits, um, mm-hmm. I didn't hear until I got the records on my own because radio mm-hmm. there just wasn't much.
0: What were U, L, I, listening to, what were you listening to?
1: So this is like late 70s? Um, the best of the really popular 60s bands. Um, I also like a, a lot of the 50s acts, but I mean the 60s were really what I was getting most excited about. So, Like what? Like, um... Well, The Beatles, I went through by the time I was 12, but Mm -hmm. then I got to all the Rolling Stones albums, and then The Doors, and then Yardbirds, Kinks, Mm -hmm. and Jefferson Airplane, Buffalo Springfield. But um, I don't know if you read, like, the introduction to my first book, but the first album I got where nobody I knew knew had ever heard it, it wasn't The Velvet Underground, that was a little bit later, it was Love's Forever Changes. Mm -hmm. It never got played on the radio once that I remember... But I kept reading that this album, it was it was showing up on all these mm. best of lists, and it sounded like something I'd like. So I got it without
0: mm.
1: anybody I know having heard it.
0: How? How did you get it? It was
1: a used record at Plastic Fantastic in Bryn Mawr, mm. Pennsylvania. Mm. If you were, I think, you know, even discounting that kids can download stuff mm. on the internet now for free in a lot of cases. Kids had less money then. It's hard. It didn't seem like we didn't have, you know, that we were disadvantaged. But, you know, you had maybe five dollars or ten dollars a week to do what you wanted with, mm. and so used record stores, which had just started up, really, they were a real advantage. Mm. I got a lot of the Stones albums used and the Kings albums, and,
2: mm.
1: and I started to find some of the more obscure things. The '69 Velvet well, Underground '69 Live, I got that for four dollars. That double album. Mm. Mm. But even then, you couldn't find valid underground albums used, except for that <laughs> the live ones. Um, the second and third albums, they, they never showed up used.
0: Before we started Lover, we started Lover like 10 years ago Before we started Lover We didn't think there was any good music being made anymore Because we listened to the radio <laughs> So I, you know, shut it off And then we started Lover And we started getting all this stuff mm-hmm. sent to us By bands that, you know, you never heard mm-hmm. of Never play on the radio And it's like, oh, so this is where all the good music is It's not mm-hmm. the stuff they play on the radio It's just stuff people are putting out by themselves
2: mm. mm-hmm.
0: Eh may, maybe, L, it, always, has been that way. Well, I
1: mean, I think at the very beginning of commercial FM radio, like a lot of good stuff was played, actually. I have really faint memories. Yes. When I was six and seven, they would play...
0: This is in the 60s.
1: Yeah, I had, all my brothers are older than me, and the oldest one was listening to the radio. So even though I wasn't really digesting it as much as I would 10 years later, I remember when they would play like Court of the Crimson King and and things like that. And I could tell that even by the time I was 11, which is when I started listening more seriously, that the the playlists were tightening up and there were more ads and there were more obnoxious ads.
0: Yes, the D, the DJs on F, FM radio did no P, played whatever they wanted to play at that at mm-hmm. the beginning. Yeah, part.
1: And then mm. when people started making more money off of it. They wanted it more formatted.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The most interesting things to me were when they had a Rolling Stones A to Z weekend and a Who A, Z, a to Z weekend, because all of a sudden, for the only time I heard all these B-sides and album tracks, that, right. and I couldn't buy them then, because mm-hmm. a lot of them had never come out on albums, but I remembered them, and when I was able to get them, I got every one, last one I could.
0: In the... Eighties? No, in the E. Early. It's about K San, the the best of thing. Yeah, that's what we. When you said that, I I remember we would we taped stuff off of the radio. So the K San here in Berkeley. It's like probably the mid seventies or late seventies did a um, kind of the best rock and roll best of rock and roll was like Mm. a weekend labor day weekend or something Mm. and we taped the whole thing and we logged it all in we (laughs) have we still have the loose leaf papers with all this hammer and stuff but stuff we never ever heard before you know just the real gems Mm. you know some of them were bands we knew but songs we had never heard and um, for years We would use, like if we wanted to use one of those songs in our shows or something, we'd have to tape it off of these old reel-to-reel tapes that we had recorded (laughs) it from. (laughs) Like, I did, Frank did, I'm not. Like everybody else, the Kinks oh, yeah. song, and it was, at that time, it was just you know, a B-side. yeah, we—I mean, that was the first we ever heard of it. Like, where do you get? We didn't even know it was the Kinks for years because <laughs> they didn't say who it was. Oh so no! So for years, we just knew. And Frank sang this song for years in our show, but we didn't know <laughs> who it was. And then one day, somebody said, "Oh, that Kinks song was the Kinks." Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I came across that song by total accident. There was this tacky compilation. I don't know if you've ever seen these British albums. They're like "Golden Hour of the Kings," "Golden Hour of the Searchers," and so it was another one thing that came in used for like three fifty, and it had twenty songs. "Golden Hour of the Kings," <laughs> or go- I don't—I might even "Golden Hour of the Kings" Volume Two, and it's just a total <laughs> random selection of tracks. And that was like right in the middle. I was like, "Well, this is really good," and I don't see. It wasn't listed in any of my reference books because I usually, you know Lillian Roxson's Rock Encyclopedia? It had all these yes, tracks of, yes. list of all the tracks of the albums, but it wasn't anywhere in there. Wow. So you had to really dig for stuff. Now these days, of course, you know, the kids don't know what we had to go through. That's you know? right.
0: <laughs> now you just Google it. We had to wake up at 4 a.m. and you know,
1: <laughs> go to school through the
0: snow and stuff like that. <laughs> H <laughs> H-E <laughs> hey <laughs> I Well I was in Philadelphia. You wouldn't do it here, I know. <laughs> I L I I lived in G in Germany in sixties in sixty four and I and the a R arm arm army mm. radio
1: Armed Forces Network mm. Arm yes. Forces
0: Radio, yes. J U mm. just played mm. O Old mm. Oldies, no, Old R A all old radio shows <laughs> F from the what is it, the forties? Oh, so you heard a lot of Glenn
1: Miller? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but R A Radio Luxembourg had a show, um did R E. No. R. No. Did. E. N. G. English. L. English language. Radio. R. O. English rock. They played right. a lot of
1: English, English rock because the BBC actually didn't play much then.
0: F. Friday, no, F, T, F, R, from 1, 0, 10, p.m. till 1, 12, midnight. Yeah. So that's how you got to hear that kind of music.
1: And a lot of kids in in Britain would actually listen because they couldn't hear the yes. stuff in the BBC. Yeah. Going back to the 50s like paul McCartney has talked about well we would bring our radios mm. under the, you know to, to bed at night mm. to listen
0: i i did that okay that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: mm.
0: a mm. s n e a mm. sneak mm. uh sneak p R.E. Preview, mm. a sneak preview of
2: the
0: '60s. Mm. That was a sneak preview of the '60s. Because <laughs> you
1: probably heard a lot of British records that before they came to the states. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Some of them. Uh, you probably heard some that never came, like you know, the Pretty Things and
0: yes. Small Faces why no how did how did you L no M A make your M no make your make your was it your no make Emma, you, music, your, L, I, life. How did you make music your life?
1: Well, it's not everything, but as far as like, you know, writing about it, and that's a big part of my living. um, Do you mean more like how I became such a big fan or how I started writing or both? Both. Okay.
0: Oh wait. Do you mean both? Yes. Um Um something else. Well I just
1: I just really liked it liked music a lot from the time I heard stuff on the radio for when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. I was able to listen to at least commercial radio a lot and then I got into Odder Things and when I got to the end of all the really well known hits that were really good I wanted to find out more or find out the non hits mm-hmm. that people had made who had really popular records. Um, and I just got more and more curious the more I found out where I think a lot of people stopped.
0: We that no, their H I their hits were not the the best that up there, what well, they some did. of them were. <laughs> some groups it's like you, you don't want to hear anything. <laughs> you don't want to hear anything, anything other than the hits. The hits.
1: <laughs> there, there were some groups. I mean, I could give you a lot of examples, and I know I wrote about some of them. But like, but like them, with Van Morrison. Yes. They didn't even have that big hits, but they had. Right. They only had like a couple of hits in this country. But almost everything they recorded with right. Van Morrison was really, really good, and yes. still. Hardly anybody knows about that. The Zombies, same thing.
0: That, A, that album. That was one of our first, uh, the, them, that Them album. It's a double album, I think.
1: Was oh, it Them featuring Van Morrison?
0: Yes, yes. Okay. That was one with of our classic <laughs> records we played.
1: With, with liner notes by Lester Bangs, that one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you should keep that, even though all that stuff's been on CD, because there's those, I don't think those liner notes have ever been reprinted, like even in those two Lester Bang's anthologies Wowie. books. And I, I think it's one of the best things he ever wrote.
2: Huh.
1: And they're really long. I don't know if you remember. It's like, it was that gatefold sleeve, because there were a lot of gatefold sleeves in the 70s, and like every inch was in the middle was filled with print. Um, I, bu- I bought up them because I, um, I interviewed the guitarist this summer. He hasn't given many interviews, so that was really mm-hmm. interesting. The guy played on Gloria and Baby Please Don't Go. In Belfast I did it.
0: They B E B R O broke Mm -hmm. up Mm -hmm. before it Mm. C came out the record.
1: No, um, it's it's like really complicated. Mm-hmm. But Van Morrison was the singer from like early '64 to mid '66, mm-hmm. and all those records, all the records on which he sings, came out when he was with them. And then he left and started his solo career, and the band kept going. But those records aren't very good without him. Mm-hmm. Um, so. The first lineup did break up in mid-'65, but then they formed mm-hmm. another lineup with him and the original bass player mm-hmm. and some other guys. So it's it's totally confusing. It's like over over two and a half years, they had like a dozen lineups.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then after Van Morrison left, they had more, but that's not very interesting. Mm-hmm. But when Van Morrison was there, all the records were really good.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. b a back to what you what y- you were s back to what you were saying about your um experience getting into music getting into music yeah
1: when i w- this is like the career path of a lot of people who write about music or even work in the industry. When I was in college, I got on the radio station. And the reason I got on was because they had a really good library. It wasn't, I wanted to do a show, but it wasn't even so much, oh, I'll be on the radio and I'll be able to talk and, you know, people will hear me. It's that they had like 50,000 records. And if you were on the staff, you could go in and just. If you especially if you went in late at night you could just take a stack and play the whole thing. And that's actually where um that's where I, I heard the them Here Comes the Night Record, for instance, you know, with the Halloween graphics and Freak Out. It, that was out, had been out of print a long time, by nineteen eighty one, which is when I started. So um I was on my way to developing the expertise anyway, but that was a help and then when I was finishing college, someone else in the staff said, um, this is kind of complicated. Do I have a, any kind of time limit here okay um
0: it's a two hour show two plus okay, yeah
1: most of this it was an uh, unusual college station because most of the people in the staff were not students. most of them were older than me. Mm-hmm. They only had to get some students on because they were getting pressure from the university
0: what's what um station is Oh, it's uh, like
1: WXPN. It? in Philadelphia, yeah. they were getting pressure from the University of Pennsylvania yeah. to have I, th- I grew students. up in Philadelphia, too. Oh, really? So I'm aware of what some stuff. What part? Of Just curious. Uh,
0: <laughs> um, started out in North Philadelphia, but I had some family in South Philadelphia, and then we moved to the suburbs, Montgomery County.
1: Oh, so mm-hmm. I grew up in Balcon with Montgomery County. huh
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. I'm glad yeah. I'm here. But anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, really. I talked to someone on the staff who was like the news director. It was a real job. It wasn't just a volunteer thing. And I said, I'm going to be leaving in a few months. and just, I want to work in media and I can I talk to you about mm. possible, you know, job mm-hmm. leads I could pursue. It wasn't even that. It was like, you know, just I want to figure out what I want to do and maybe you have some good advice about how to go about um, getting experience or working towards what I want to be doing in media. And she said, there's this magazine called Op. You should really look at it, and you'd probably be a good writer for it because they don't cover anything mainstream. It's mm-hmm. all independent music. So I I wrote for them. I didn't get paid. I, I, I wasn't like working in their office because it was in Olympia, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got experience as a published writer, and then they stopped publishing, but they said if somebody wants to keep doing a magazine that's similar, we're not going to stop them. So I got a job with that magazine as the editor. It might be more impressive than it sounds because the the full-time staff was two people, the publisher and the editor. But anyway, I worked there for six years, and then that gave me a lot of experience listening to all sorts of stuff and editing. I I, I was doing a lot more editing than writing. Then... I traveled for a couple years, and I wasn't doing um, much professional writing, but I started writing for the All Music Guide. You've probably seen some of my reviews on my site or somewhere else. Yes. And the people who were publishing the books of reviews that they were doing, they don't do books anymore, unfortunately, but they had these big fat books of, like encyclopedias of All Music Guide reviews. And I helped edit that stuff, as well as doing a lot of the writing, and the publisher, who's not around anymore, but the publisher said, if you have any ideas for books of your own, we'd like to see them. So that was 1995, and my first book came out of that, Unknown Legends of Rock and Roll, that was 1998. And I do a lot of other writing because it's really hard to support yourself just doing books, but now I'm up to ten books. Most of them have been about music. Not all of them have, but most of them have. I don't know if that answered <laughs> the question. That's just the, the whole basic
2: line.
0: U N K N O The Unknown Is What S T O stopped mm. me l a last mm. night oh. <laughs> on your
2: mm.
0: on your website mm. uh-huh
1: um, have you seen that book
0: just on your website
1: okay Unfortunately, it's not published by the same people who put out the Velvet Underground one because otherwise I would say, well, they should be able to send you one. Um, But did you want, want to know something about that?
0: Yes. B. E.
2: Because.
0: Who. Is in that who is in there are a m among my favorites
1: mm-hmm. um well there are 60 people so <laughs> it'd be hard to <laughs> um well, Love is by one of the most famous bands. It's it's strange. It came out, okay, so 11 years ago. And some of the people in there, at that point, they were mm-hmm. cult figures. They weren't that well-known. But now I think people would say, oh, everybody knows about them. So, for instance, some of the most well-known people in there, Nick Drake and mm-hmm. Sid Barrett, um, Love with Arthur Lee, they'd say, oh, they're way, way too well-known to be in a book like that. You should, you know, I don't want to, name names. There are a lot of bands people like me to write about who I don't think are very good. And they would say, you should write about this dumb band that put out, you know, these two pretty difficult albums in 68 and
0: 72 that... Y. (laughs) W. A. S. Waste. Time. Well,
1: that's, yeah, that's kind of how how I feel. I mean... A lot of these readers have the best intentions. It's just, oh, I really like that record. I wish he would write about it because I'm not, I'm not a writer, and I want more people to know about it. But I think I'm actually, I was actually a lot more selective than people realize. I didn't just go out and say, well, I can write about these few dozen groups that most people haven't heard of, and then after that, I can find a few dozen others and a few dozen others. It was actually the the, the acts I wanted to write about the most. A lot of obscure acts aren't very good, and if the music's not really, really good, the, the stories don't tend to be very good. That's also really important. I mean, what are you going to ask them about if the record is not extremely interesting? And a lot of the times the stories were as unusual as the music. Even if the music wasn't unusual, if it was really good, the stories were like, well, you couldn't really make this up. It's just... Uh, um,
0: like, give us an example.
1: The Misunderstood, have you heard them? No. Yeah, most, well, a lot of people haven't. They were from California and their music, just to generalize, um, it sounds like a lot of um, Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd kind of meets early Jimi Hendrix and the Yardbirds. It's very interesting. But um, their story was strange because they were from um, Riverside. They moved to California in 19 uh, to London in 1966 because they figured they have a better chance in the British music scene. And John Peel, the um, DJ, said you should come over because he had actually had a radio show in California and met them there. And they did a single and they did like six tracks, which are really good. But um, the lead singer was evading the draft. And he got called back to be inducted, and he figured he could beat the draft, but he got inducted. And then he went AWOL for like 12 years.
0: Wow. (laughs) Um,
1: But it it wasn't just that. And the rest of the band, um, they went to France because they had this shady manager who set up something for them, and they didn't have enough money to get back to England. So... um, they got stuck on the boat, and the French authorities wouldn't let them off, and the British authorities wouldn't let them off, and they were going back and forth in the English Channel for three days, starving. Wow. And finally, they got off from Britain, and they were told, you've got to leave in 48 hours. Mm. So that was really heartbreaking. Um, I mean, it's just a very, very small example of, like, how much destruction the Vietnam, Vietnam War caused. I'm not just... Comparing it to the millions of people who died, the millions of Vietnamese who died—that's a lot more serious. But it just, what one of the guys in the band said—it's just an example of how far the, te- the te- tentacles of that evil reach into all layers of society, as far as ruining people's mm-hmm. lives.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, most musicians could beat the draft if they were really serious, um, had serious management pull behind them. But it um, split that band up, and that was really mm-hmm. sad. But he's, he's still... That, that singer who got drafted, he eventually got amnesty and he's hes very much alive and healthy um, living in Thailand. <laughs> wow. I visited him there. So that's one example. <laughs> um, maybe an example you are more familiar with. You know about Skip Spence's story from Moby
0: Grape? It. Um, they. They. Don't of oh, the audience. Tell the audience. Ah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, Skip Spence was in Jefferson Airplane and Moby Grape, but the only solo album he made, which was the late 1960s after he left Moby Grape, is really, really good. Acid Folk is a label that's being kind of bandied out about a lot more these days, and I think that's like the greatest acid folk album. It really is strange, but it has Mm. a very down-to-earth folk feel, folk blues feel at the same time. But his story is really interesting because the reason he left Moby Grape is that, according to accounts from other people in the group, he flipped out on acid and actually started attacking people with a fire axe, and he got committed to Bellevue Hospital in New York, unfortunately. And right after he got out, this is like late 1968, he recorded this great album, but you can tell listening to the album, it's kind of like listening to Sid Barrett in retrospect. Well, it's great music, but you can tell that this guy's burning out really fast, and that he's becoming unhinged. And he never did another album on his own after that, unfortunately, and he ended up uh, living in the streets for a long time in really bad mental and physical health and mm. died about ten years ago. Mm. So that's like a sad story in the book. They're not all sad tragic stories, but are, some of them are
0: Oh. Rocky like Rocky Erickson?
1: Yeah, but Rocky Erickson mm. has it a little better because mm. in the last few years, because his brother yeah. took a lot of care to try and make him better, mm. he's he's not just in better health, but he's he's performing now, and he seems yeah. to like it.
0: Yes, uh, Rocky Erickson. We he performed at one of our events um, in this in like '76, maybe. Yeah. Um, we did a fantasy a couple fantasy costume parades through the streets of Berkeley, <laughs> and they ended up at um, Prevo Park or Martin Luther King Park, and um, we would have a show, and he performed at one of those shows.
1: Yeah, he was living out here for a few years and he I spoke to him for the chapter in my there's a chapter in my book on the first book on Rocky mm-hmm. Erickson and on I talked to the guy who managed him out here and he was produced by um, Stu Cook in Crean's Clearwater Revival a solo album mm-hmm. while he was out here. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't he wasn't doing so well um, mentally at the time even mm-hmm. though he was making some music.
0: We Did Not Know mm. Who mm. He Was I mean when we booked him we weren't that familiar mm. with him You know we just you know He was here and he was available and we Booked mm. him it was years later <laughs> When we went oh my god That's <laughs> the guy that played at our, at our Show <laughs> Uh, You hadn't
1: heard the 13-floor elevators?
0: I hadn't. Um, I had but who knew the name of who was in the band. You didn't know him from that band.
1: (laughs) And, I mean, he's another story. It's like When I first heard the 13 Floor Elevators, I would have never thought, well, there's gonna be this worldwide cult surrounding Rocky Erickson and he's gonna get national attention for comeback. And now there's a whole book about the 13 Floor Elevators and there's a big box set. Um, But even 11 years ago when he was a chapter in my book, I would have never have thought that he would become as well-known as he is. So it's kind of an example of how some of the people I write about, well, I think all of them, but it's varying degrees, if they're not really successful the first time around, but the music's really good, it will find its audience. Mm -hmm. It's just going to take 30 or 40 years sometimes. I mean, Nick Drake's a very extreme example. And Skip Mm -hmm. Spence, right before he died 10 years ago, he was starting to get some national attention because there was a tribute album about him
0: you know is there any f r e d fred neil c
1: d's oh yeah i wrote liner notes for one of them Um, So, okay, so I'm not the most objective guy about this, but I think even if it's not in print, you can still find it used. It's Mm -hmm. called The Many Sides of Fred Neal. So it's a double CD, and it has everything he did for Capitol Records. Mm -hmm. And the stuff he did for Elektra Records, that's all in print. I think everything that he, you know, he only has like about four Mm -hmm. albums worth of material. I think everything is in print now.
0: We, K, keep, R, E, A, reading about his influence on other people, but have not we do actually have we Mikey have just su- We have the many sides. Okay. We did. <laughs> we did end up finding that one. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So. Um, that has his best known songs because. You've definitely heard at least one of his songs. Everybody's talking, which was a huge hit for Nielsen, and the Dolphins. Tim Buckley did that, and some other people have done that. Yes. Um,
0: T. I, Tim Buckley, is a other one that I, you just discovered, Frank just discovered Tim Buckley. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, do you know that, I'm not trying to promote myself too much, but you know that there are chapters about Fred Neal and Tim Buckley in the Urban Spaceman and Wayfaring Strangers book? Yes. Okay.
0: They that Mm -hmm. is why you're bringing them up. (laughs) 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 Yes, Mm -hmm.
2: yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. How, why
2: Mm.
0: are not they Mm. be e better known?
1: Hmm. Well, Fred Neal, he was really not of the temperament that was suited for success in the music business, especially as far as promoting himself, because he barely played live at all, except when he was starting out in the New York clubs. He never toured. And if he was a prolific songwriter after his first couple albums, I mean, he He didn't actually record a lot, so he was, and some people have said he had some pretty bad drug problems, too. I think that if people had heard the records, they would have appreciated him, but... A
0: a lot of musicians had bad drug problems.
1: Yeah, and a lot of them were, were, were more successful. Yeah. He was a little too early because um, he wasn't a hit singles-oriented artist. He would have been a good albums artist, Mm -hmm. but the albums that he was doing came out in 65, 66, Mm -hmm. 67, and that was before singer-songwriters had become a big thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the producer, Joe Boyd, he kind of made a valid point that might apply to someone like Fred Neal. When I interviewed him about Nick Drake, he said... um, In the United States, Leonard Cohen could become successful because he didn't make hit singles, but his albums got a lot of FM airplay, and he could tour off of that and make a living off that. But in Britain, we didn't have that. There wasn't enough airtime for music in general, but certainly not for that kind of music, and Nick Drake couldn't get that kind of exposure in England. Because Fred Neal was like two or three years before Leonard Cohen came out, he didn't have the FM radio vehicle for getting those albums played that he might mm-hmm. have had if that FM radio structure was in place just three years before that. That's part of the reason. But Tim mm-hmm. Buckley, it's different because he, he did do a lot of albums, and he did tour, um, and he was around when FM radio took off. And I think... I'm oh, sorry?
0: And I am B- very. U. N. I. Unique. And you are very. Oh, and he is very unique.
1: Yeah. But I think with him, part of the situation was he kept changing very quickly and very constantly. And I mean, even though Leonard Cohen stuff's not terribly commercial, from album to album. The style is pretty similar. I mean, yeah, he recorded in Nashville and did some more country-oriented mm-hmm. stuff, but it wasn't that much different from his other stuff. But Tim Buckley went from, like, folk rock to mm-hmm. avant-garde mm-hmm. to jazz.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that one album, he did that. Lorca? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We yeah. like that a lot, but it's, yeah. But that was never going to sell. Like, to
1: right. Today it still wouldn't if some re- moderately popular group put out an album like that, it wouldn't happen. And Star Sailor was also... Some of the songs on that are fairly normal, but um, others... I mean, the way I wrote about it, he sings like his liver is being ripped out slowly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) W-H, which it was, no, which is which is Y-I- like him okay
1: yeah well when I interviewed the guy who was his most frequent songwriting collaborator he said like you know from a distance we admire that because it seems so adventurous but when it's happening especially then 40 years ago 35 years ago and you're trying to build an audience without having had a hit record first like say David Bowie did before he did low then people aren't going to follow you they'll run out of patience or they're not going to stick with you I mean, to to give the David Bowie example, he changed styles a lot, but once he had that really big break, breakthrough with Ziggy Stardust, roughly speaking, people were more willing to be patient and investigate if he went into soul music and then he went into the ambient stuff on low than they would have if he was a new artist or he was a cult artist who didn't have that stardom behind him.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Why did not A.R. Arthur Brown do M. more? I don't know.
1: It seemed like, uh, there was one comment, I forget if it was Joe Boyd or someone else who was on the British scene, but there was this book like uh, Days in the Life in the, of the Underground by Jonathan Green. I might be getting the title wrong. And someone was talking about seeing Arthur Brown. He said, you knew that that guy was not going to last very long because he was putting too much into every show that he did. Um, now, I didn't see Arthur Brown. I was way too young. But I've seen a film of him. And when I interviewed him, he said, you know, I, I actually broke, like, you know, toes all the time. <laughs> he was just putting so much into it that I think after that one album, which is really good, he actually got burned out. And with some people, they have that success and it like makes them hungry to sustain it. With him, it was kind of like, well, this isn't really something I enjoy, so it doesn't really matter to me to try and pump out the product to keep that profile up. That's another part of it.
0: How? What? Did? He? Do? After? After that?
1: He did all these, well, he did like some unreleased recordings, which they weren't that much like the Crazy World of Arthur Brown, and they weren't as good. Then he did this like strange kind of hard theatrical hard rock with Kingdom Come where they used a drum machine. It's very gloomy stuff. And then he was out of the music business pretty much for a long time, and he was painting houses with Jimmy Carl Black of the Mothers of Invention in Texas. Whoa. That, yeah, it's a, it's a career thing you couldn't make up.
0: You don't, you want, you want a house, paint. Painted by him. By him. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I... <laughs> I mean, I don't
1: see why not. Uh, first of all, if you you're gonna to have to be around while he works, um, it's probably gonna be a lot more entertaining than the usual house painter. He's a pretty friendly guy, so if he if he was the kind of guy like, oh, you know, you want a break now, come in and have some tea, he'd probably be quite happy to you know sit and tell you interesting stories. And being of an artistic sensibility overall, I bet that you know if they. If you wanted anything done that was to- somewhat out of the ordinary, he'd probably be better equipped to do that than the average house painter you hire. Yes.
2: Yeah. yes.
1: Um I never saw any of the houses he painted, but uh, he, you know, he wasn't just doing it once or twice. He did it for a while, and a lot of the people probably had no idea who he was. So he couldn't have kept doing it if right. he wasn't good at it.
0: Yes. They, that. Can that a l a l b u that album was g great the crazy world of Arthur yeah. Brown.
1: it's not a good example of someone people think of as a one a one shot artist, but that album is really strong the whole way through.
0: I h e a heard it for the first time Y mm. E A years L A later mm. Mm. after I did F I, Fire. Yeah, after, you had been after doing, Fire. After you did, I mean, after you had been performing? Is that what you mean? Frank performed oh, you, you that did, in his you show. You did Fire? Okay. Uh, before he had heard the album. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that, that's a, there aren't many careers comparable to Arthur Brown because that album did really well, too. It's kind of mm-hmm. like he had this, thum- Number two hit single, mm. like Hey Jude was number one and this was number two, and that yeah. album made the top ten, mm. and usually, you know, even if you don't do records that's successful after that, you could ride off of that for three or four albums that are fairly popular, but it just stopped for him commercially anyway, He and he didn't even put out anything else mm. as an album with The Crazy World of Arthur Brown.
0: May. Maybe. F I R Fire was one T R E A Reason May, maybe P People she thought he was a n i n o novelty
1: yeah um but i th- my impression is a lot of it had to do with what he wanted or what he didn't want to do because if he I think he was, uh, again, temperamentally temperamentally unsuited for the business, but if, when that album was a hit, if he'd been like, okay, I have a bunch of new songs, let's get this out as quickly as possible, I think um, record companies in Europe and North America would have been dying to have another record from him. Mm. So I think it was a lot of, he willfully didn't want to keep doing that kind of stuff. And maybe he felt frustrated because he didn't want to go out and do fire every night, aside from it being kind of exhausting and dangerous. Um he didn't want to you know that to be all everyone thought of him.
0: He is A G great B L blues singer.
1: Well, it doesn't really sound like the blues to me when it comes out, but it's it's almost like um Obviously he like so many british people were heavily influenced by rhythm and blues but he has this really theatrical operatic quality um like especially when he you know he he goes into this like really low almost like um dramatic recital but then he goes into this like ah really upper register trill he can do it really quickly too um and when you see him on film there's not that much film of him but um I do these regular presentations of rare rock films in the Bay Area, at libraries especially. And the two clips I have, they always get this you know, overwhelming reaction. Also, Alice Cooper stole a lot of his act from Arthur Brown.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he wasn't nearly as good a musician.
0: Do you have V I video? of what you do in libraries?
1: No, I don't. And part of the reason is over the internet, if you have a film of a film and that sound, it's not going to come out too well. I don't think it's going to be too representative. I can talk about it if you want, but I don't have, um, like... Video or podcast or any mm. or that kind of stuff.
0: How mm-hmm. about of no for P mm. U B L I Public A C Access mm. TV. Oh.
1: Um, I don't have any.
0: (laughs) Will? No. Would? You? Want? To? Would you want to do something, put together something to play on public access TV?
1: No. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh... I'm oh, sorry about that <laughs> part of the, part of the attraction of doing these events is that a lot of this stuff can be seen on YouTube these days, but when you have a big screen, first of all, the quality's better, but also um if a bunch of people will see it together, that kind of adds to the experience instead of just dialing it up on the computer.
0: G T A Talk about what you S H O show, talk about what you show during the library presentations.
1: Okay. Well, some of the presentations are geared toward my books, where like for my book, The Unreleased Beatles, I show rare Beatles clips for events that I've done for my Velvet Underground book. I've shown, there aren't many Velvet Underground film clips, but I've Mm -hmm. shown some, and I've also played some rare audio clips, but I also do theme nights which aren't related to any of my specific books. I've done one for the British Invasion, one for a woman in rock. I'm doing one December 9th at the Haight-Ashbury Library on rock and roll's first decade clips from 1954 through 1963, roughly. I've done Soul Music Night, those kinds of things. I've done some in other areas, but because I live here, most of them have been in the Bay Area.
0: S. E e c y i m p r e s pressuring <laughs> him <laughs> right f o f l f f what uh. folks see? Why <laughs> I'm pressuring him, folks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. We could turn it off for a second.
0: Oh. <laughs>
1: I no. Okay. No. We, yeah. Okay. I can say more about it uh, later tonight.
0: Okay. M. U. I. I was. L. I. Listening. To. A. W. No. Two A E. Mm. A. Mm. Early. B. Beatles. Mm. S. L, S-L, no, S-O, song. And I, I, and I did not realize who, how, you, and unique mm. they mm. they were mm.
1: well, which song was it? Maybe I can say more about it.
0: I am I <laughs> don't, I want. To be your man?
1: I want to be your man? Mm. Um, Well, there's a a whole show about the Beatles as far as how unique Mm. they were. Can I say something about what I wrote about them? Yes. Okay. I did a whole book on the unreleased Beatles, and... Something that I try to do in all my writing, either write about stuff that's not so well known because it deserves to get written about if it's really interesting and so much rock writing is about the superstars. But if I write about the superstars, I want to write about some aspect of the group which isn't covered very much. So in this 400-page book, The Unreleased Beatles, that came out three years ago, I covered only the recordings they made, which haven't come out. And it's a measure of how good the group were that, even though you would never put what the the material they didn't release on par with the official albums that everyone's very familiar with, even those mm-hmm. records, a lot even those recordings, a lot of them are really good. And even if they're not really good, they tell you a lot about the band that you're not going to find out about through official sources. Now, I Want to Be Your Man, I don't have too much of a story behind that because there's no, like, radically unre- different unreleased version, but a lot of people in the United States still don't know that it was the second Rolling Stones single. Did you hear yeah. that when you were in Germany? Because <laughs> you, you, you you would wow. ne- have never heard it here. Wow. Um This was late 63, and I think they already knew that... Um, they wanted to use it for themselves, too, but their manager at the time, Andrew Oldham, just came, a- he knew them already, but he just came across them in London by chance, and he said, we really need a second single, The Rolling Stones, because The Rolling Stones weren't writing their own songs then. Do you have anything that might be good for them? Because some songs the Beatles wrote but didn't record, they gave to other people. And they said, well, yeah, we might. So he said, well, let's come along to where they're like rehearsing or, or playing now. And um, they ran through it for them, and the Rolling Stones said, Yeah, um, that sounds like it could be really good, but it's not finished yet. And John and Paul said, Well, just give us a few minutes. And they went you know, into, the, uh, into a corner <laughs> or something, and they came back in like 10 or 15 minutes and said, Okay, well, here it is. <laughs> and the Rolling Stones version is really good. I like the Beatles version a lot, but the Rolling Stones version is really good. It has this swooping slide guitar. Wow. And also, they said that even beyond giving them a fairly big British hit single, it was an example to them. Like, well, if they can write a song like that that quickly, we we could write something because they weren't writing anything then. Wow. And it, it took them like a year and a half, but then they started to write hit songs for themselves. So that's my that's I want to be your man story.
0: story. <laughs> yeah, wow. And your B, your book, S, your books are C, H, U, Chuck, and Chuck full (laughs) of stories like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: I'm trying to think of another. Mm -hmm. Is there another Beatles story that would be on par um, with that?
0: The B Beatles G O Got M O More E N Energy. On
2: mm.
0: to onto a mm. record. Got more energy onto a record. You mean than anyone else? Mm. Um I kind
1: of agree with that, especially
2: mm-hmm. in
1: the early days, um, Some people don't value the Beatles' early stuff too highly. I think that they were, there aren't many groups you could say this about, they maintained a really, really high standard throughout their career, even though the music kept changing. Well, here's one aspect of their unreleased music where their energy comes through a lot. Their BBC recordings that they did for British Radio, even though two CDs have come out, there are about eight more CDs worth which haven't. Most of that stuff is just different versions of songs from their records. But still, it's just amazing. I mean, they're usually not playing before an audience, but mm-hmm. there's such immediacy to um, to even those recordings where at the time they weren't thinking, well, people are going to be listening to this 40 or 45 years from now. They were just doing it because they mm-hmm. were booked on the radio and it was a way to get heard on the BBC. Mm-hmm. But even in that situation it's like they put 110% into virtually everything. Now, the letter It Be sessions, they didn't always do that. So, it, <laughs> That's another thing from uh, doing the book. I mean, I'd heard most of the stuff before, but I went through it again. And even in their unreleased takes and recordings, usually there's a lot of inspiration going on, even if the... Recording's not so bad if maybe the, or maybe the song's not too good or it breaks down. But in the letter B sessions where there's like a hundred hours of stuff, which have come out um, unofficially, uh, it is a little sad if you really like the group because a lot of the times they don't sound that good. They sound uninspired like because in part because the tensions that were leading to their breakup were really starting to surface. But so, sometimes they sound really great. That's another weird part. You, you hear these different versions of Get Back or Two of us, where they sound magnificent, but they were not summoning that as regularly because I think uh, John, especially, wasn't as into being in the band as he used to, and George was writing a lot of his, more of his own songs, and they weren't being always being taken seriously by John and Paul, so he was getting frustrated. So these things were kind of eroding the group uh, togetherness.
0: How? R, how do, how do you, P, I, pick, A, B, book, to, do?
1: It depends not just on what I want to do the most, but what publishers want because there are still some ideas where I'd like to do them eventually, and hopefully I might, but especially if the subject's considered pretty uncommercial.
0: Like like what?
1: I can't say, because some of these ideas are still,
0: <laughs>
1: are still being uh, considered. But say I, I mean, here's an example, because I know I'm not going to do this book, no offense against the band, I did a chapter on them, in my first book, say I wanted to do a book on Red Crayola, kind of contemporaries of the 13 Floor Elevators, and the leader, Mayo Thompson, is still putting out records as leader of Red Crayola. It would probably make for a pretty interesting story, fairly interesting book. No one, well, don't want to offend Mayo Thompson, very unlikely that a sizable publisher would give the go-ahead for a book like that because it's just not going to be considered commercial. They say, hey, you know, not that many people have ever bought even one Red Crayola record who's going to buy a whole book about them. So that's an unfortunate reality, and I don't want to pick on Red Crayola. There are ideas for books I've had of artists which are considerably bigger than Red Crayola where it's been turned down. And um, It's not maybe as easy as some people think to get a book published about um, a cult act or an act which is really interesting but not a huge seller. Um, And even sometimes if a publisher wants to do it, they're not going to be big enough to pay a writer who's a full-time professional writer like I am enough to make it worthwhile. I mean, as much as I like certain artists, I can't uh, lose a ton of money doing a book on them. So these are all things I have to juggle. But every music book I've done, I have, whether it's been the publisher's idea or my idea or a combination where we've talked about it, I've really wanted to do the book. It hasn't just been, well, we need a book about the Velvet Underground, can you do that? I really want to do a a book about it, and not just any old book, but the most definitive book that that I could.
0: It is overwhelming.
1: (laughs) That's a compliment, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he means it as a compliment. (laughs) Yeah. Just the amount of work that went into it, all the details that you have. But if
1: I'm going to do any book, but especially a book like this, which is kind of like... Trying to write about everything interesting and important that happened to them, not just even a straight narrative. I f- there are a couple things. First of all, for the re- for the readers, I think I really wanted to do the best job possible, and not just like, well, this will be good enough, or rehash stuff that's already been published about them. But as a big fan of the group, it was more interesting to me the more work that I put into it. It's unfortunate that it takes so many hours to get at that stuff, but that's the only way to get at it. There are...
0: How long did it take you to do that?
1: Now, for any book, that's difficult to answer because the nature of at least the writing I do is that I always have to be doing more than one project at Mm -hmm. once, sometimes more than one book at once, but also I need to be doing some Mm non-book work, writing work like liner notes and reviews Mm -hmm. and... Articles or um, whatever, so that I can support mm-hmm. myself, so it's not like I get a book deal, and then mm-hmm. I work forty hours a week on that book until it's done I'm always doing other things, and some mm-hmm. weeks I work on a sixty hours and some I work on a two hours mm-hmm. but say I was working forty fifty hour weeks on only that book, mm-hmm. I think it would have been it would have added up to between six months and a year. I I can't say how much between. But from the time I started it to the time I sent the manuscript in was a year and a half.
0: That. S-E-E seems fast for what the book is. Yeah. Yeah,
1: well, I agree. If I can be... I'm a very fast typist. And a a story about that, um, I did a lot of first-hand interviews for the book. That's actually what takes a lot of time. I think a lot of people outside the process of writing nonfiction, not through any fault of their own, they don't have the most accurate idea of what's involved. It's not like, oh, I'm doing a book, so I'm just going to sit down and write till it's finished. A lot of the work, at least for the books that I do, is the research, and a lot of that research is trying to get first-hand interviews with people who are Mm -hmm. still around. I did about 100 for the Velvet Underground book. But anyway, one of the people I interviewed was Sterling Morrison's wife. Sterling Morrison died in 1995. And Sterling Morrison was actually working on a book about the Velvet Underground before he died. And I asked her about that, and she said, oh, it didn't get very far, so it's never going to be published. And maybe 15 months later, no, it was only about a year actually after I interviewed her, I sent her the finished book. And she wrote back, You're a lot faster than Sterling was. (laughs) (laughs) So even though Sterling Morrison, I'm sure he had the ability to write it because he was actually, he got a PhD in literature and taught uh, college for a long time the rate at which people work is quite variable. I don't ever work quickly at the expense of the quality, but fortunately I'm able to work pretty quickly. It's a necessity. If you're going to be a full-time self-employed writer as I am, it's a necessity to be able to work that fast just to be able to support yourself.
0: And... You do T-R-A travel, B-I-B-O-O, and you do travel books.
2: Yeah,
1: but I've only done a couple. There's a series, it's based in London, but it's distributed here too, called The Rough Guides, and they kind of do independent travel things. And I did a guide to Seattle. It's not very exotic. And I did a a guide to the regional music of the United States where a lot of traveling was Mm -hmm. involved. Now, if someone has a romantic idea about travel writing, and I don't regret doing that experience, but it's not that romantic a situation because you don't get a ton of money. It's not like they say, oh, here's a lot of money. Go to Switzerland or Thailand Mm -hmm. until you've got... And travel around... Stay at all these hotels until you have all the stuff you need for the book. It's kind of like you get a fairly limited advance, and you've got to really squeeze to make that even cover your basic expenses. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work is very interesting. A lot of it is very uh, mundane because you have to check on things like Mm -hmm. hotel prices and train timetables and stuff like that. So even though I enjoyed doing the Seattle book, it's too much work for too little
0: reimbursement. (laughs) And t r a travel b travel books get old fast yeah
1: but you can you know you can revise them mm-hmm. every two and three years to keep them current but sure as opposed to a music book mm-hmm. where you might find out everyone's always going to find out more stuff after a book comes out about a certain artist or style but if it's a good book you'll be able to pick it up you know as long as you live and get something out of it you know even since the Velvet Underground book came out I appreciate that you like the thoroughness of what I did but about 15 people have contacted me since it came out who I didn't find or I didn't know had interesting information and I could add already stuff from those 15 people those 15 people have told me not it can range from stuff Stuff from as um, slight as well I saw them in 1969. I have an interesting story. Or one guy who says, who I, who just contacted me who said I have all these interview tapes and music tapes of Lou Reed right after he left the Velvet Underground that no one else has heard. Wow. Well, not like twenty of them, but you know enough to have made that part of the book more interesting and deeper. Even though it was interesting as it was. <laughs>
0: we w walked out mm. on a Lou Reed concert.
1: <laughs> oh, what year was it?
0: It was in berkeley um, it was probably in the somewhere between seventy five and eighty in that uh-huh. period, mm. and i was in a mm. s e a, mm. seat. Mm. Oh, is that right? We had put you in a chair, so we it, we caused a lot of commotion to lift Frank out of the seat, <laughs> put him in his wheelchair, and leave. So it was like loud of us to leave. Mm. It was it the Berkeley um, at Berkeley High, that Berkeley Community yeah. Theater? Mm. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: B, mm-hmm. because. Well I think we didn't we didn't know enough about him, you know, in like you know, in a wide way and we knew like some a little bit about him and we had expectations of that person and then we found this other guy that we didn't really know and we weren't I guess feeling very experimental. <laughs> so we left. Well
1: he's a very erratic <laughs> Artist as a solo guy, not with the Velvet Underground, but as a solo Mm -hmm. artist. And I don't know what he would have been playing then, but Mm I um, there's a lot of his solo stuff I don't I'm not very interested in, so Mm -hmm. I I would have probably never walked out in the Velvet
0: Underground Mm -hmm. concert, but B. Berry D. Mm -hmm. R. Dry it was very dry was he playing guitar do you remember just or just singing
1: yes i okay. think
0: he was playing guitar and it wasn't it wasn't like the big stuff it was so i remember dry and kind of like you know flat or something it just there wasn't like a whole lot a r t it was artsy very artsy oh okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> I what well, I am I was mm. G O mm. going to mm. C going to C. now going to S mm. F, San Francisco mm. A R, mm. T art institute yeah s so <coughs> i but i think this was before mm. it was this was before the art institute mm. i think i thought it was before the art institute
1: well when was the art institute years
0: the art institute was i think 82 maybe mm-hmm. 82 for 2 years somewhere around there okay maybe 83 I did not, mm. what about the Art Institute, fit, the Art Institute was um, a total fiasco, <laughs> we um, we had been doing the show for three and a half years, it was very popular, we had like a, a cast of like 30 people that had been working with Frank for years, mm. and this was kind of like the outgrowth of that, and then that group broke up and the show stopped. It was like, okay, well, what do we do now? So Frank thought, well, he already had a master's in um, psychology. He thought, I could get another master's and that would be a way to meet artists. Let's go to a, and do like an art master's. So we <laughs> was between San Francisco State and the Art Institute. And we picked the Art Institute just because it was closer. And um, thinking that we would meet interesting people to collaborate with and do things with, because that's what we were interested in. And it was a performance slash video department. And we didn't really even know what we had been doing was called performance art for all the years <laughs> prior to that. We just thought it was weird shit we did. But because we, the department was one thing and we were going for video, we discovered we were performance art. But um, the people at the school had a problem with Frank because he was having too much fun. And they were, like, mm. drinking a lot of beer and angsting. And Frank comes <laughs> in there like this, you know, trying every idea he has and not mm. worrying about if it, like, fails or succeeds. Mm. So people pretty much just tried to ignore us, teachers included, for two years. And um, mm. But he got his revenge because <laughs> at the end, the last semester we were there, they had a uh, guest teacher, Linda Burnham, who edited a and founded a performance art magazine, high performance, which because we didn't know the art scene, we weren't impressed, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) everybody else was impressed. And she took to Frank right away and put him on the cover of her magazine. And so Frank called that his revenge Mm because even the teachers wanted to get on the Mm -hmm. cover of her magazine. (laughs) (laughs) And we didn't meet any people to collaborate with.
1: Well, there was a renowned San Francisco punk musician who went there for a while, but before... The 80s. Penelope Houston from Mm -hmm. The Avengers. Right.
0: Mm. Yes. Mm. We. Is it we? Did. We. O. P. Open. Mm -hmm. Yeah, The Avengers was one of the bands Mm -hmm. we would open for all the time at the Mabuhay.
1: And she was... um, I did a chapter on her in my first book. And I'm still in touch with her because she lives... I don't know. I th- I think if she's still in the same place, it's only like two miles south of here. Yes. And she works at the San Francisco Library.
0: We play her music. We have her CD that we play. Yeah, one of her CDs. She probably has a bunch of them by now. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a... E, no, A-R, E, C, O, record, C, O, M, C-O-L, L, -L, collection.
1: Well, of course, but you probably want to know how big it is and stuff like that.
0: (laughs) 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 In. I, n, c, i in inches, oh. in inches. No, I
1: don't. I don't. You know, s- some people involved in music like I am, they have this like methodical approach to their collection. Like every time I get it, I, you know, put it in a database or put an index card attached to it. I file it in a certain way, and I'm not fussy, I file them alphabetically, which, just so I can find them, Mm. but I, my estimate is, and I I don't count Mm. how many I have, I have, I think about 1,200 or 1,300 LPs, but I I think I have like 7 or 8,000 CDs, Mm. and I've, a bunch of stuff on tape. Mm.
0: It's our cat kitty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. I'm not real Um, I got less sentimental about about my record collection when I had to move twice in three years recently and Mm -hmm. when you got to pack all that stuff and unpack it and then Mm -hmm. just take it back basically I was in San Francisco for 11 years and I was in Oakland for three years and I moved Mm -hmm. back a year and a half ago Mm -hmm. and when I Went back. I realized. Well, I I didn't play a lot of these records when I was in Oakland. You, you get a little less materialistic about them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It no we get. Are oh, you getting ready to hit him up for a um, We have. Um, we have gotten record collections from various people over the years, and, and by get meaning that um, we would they would give us their records in installments. That Mikey would then digitize, <laughs> and in ex- basically in exchange for it, we would give them back a digitized version of their record collection. But lover would also then acquire their record collection because we would digitize mm-hmm. them for us too. We got um, John Sinclair was one <laughs> who that we were you know, pretty happy to get, <laughs> except his his was actually digitized already when he uh, he was he's been a guest on this show twice. Mm-hmm. The second time he came on, Frank was ready. So he, when he first came in and we're just hanging out before the show, Frank said. Could Lover get a copy of your record collection? Mm. And w- not we were shocked. He picks up his laptop <laughs> and hands it to us and says, Yeah, can you make the copy while we're doing the show? So Mikey ran in there mm. and scrambled. And in the two hours, um, I guess, whatever you do, copied <laughs> them. Yeah. 30 gigs.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm. A. Mm. M. Amazing. His his collection in particular was amazing because it was unique. It was stuff we hadn't heard before. He I guess he lived in New Orleans for a while, so he had a lot of this. Th- is, well, had a lot I of saw music. a documentary
1: on him. He he lived there for a long time. He might have moved recently.
0: He's in Holland now. He lives yeah. in Amsterdam.
1: Yeah. I, I remember because there was a DVD, mm-hmm. and at the end, they all sit around and smoke yes, what you think they're going to be smoking yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But probably a lot of what he has is blues and jazz. Mm. Even though he's most known for managing the MC5, I think that's his yeah. strongest. Yes. P- probably a lot of poetry, too. Spoken yes. word stuff. Yes. Yes.
0: Mm. Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: Do? Mm. Do you?
2: Mm.
0: Like? No, do you... Ever want to do a R radio show again?
1: You mean like I did when I was in college? Yes. This is going to sound terrible, but it's honest. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have to get paid to do it because I'd really enjoy doing it, but... My resources are just kind of strained as far as mm-hmm. trying to make a living as a writer. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to take on more stuff, mm-hmm. that's about music. Although I, this is not a knock against uh, public and community radio stations mm-hmm. where they're mostly volunteer. Mm-hmm. To make it worthwhile for me, and I'd have to get paid mm-hmm. for doing that. Um, if it was 25 mm-hmm. years ago, I wouldn't be like that. But now that I've mm-hmm. been in... in music in a professional capacity for some time. I have to do that. I mean, it's the same thing for writing. Um, sometimes I get approached by, like, websites and stuff, like, well, you can write anything you want for us. We can't pay, but it'll be fun. And I just have to say, well, you know, I it's my living. It's not a hobby. And although I really mm-hmm. like doing what I'm doing for a living for the most part, I there are only two um, outlets where I write for free because I know mm-hmm. the people involved and they do some similar sort of, mm-hmm. Um, things for me
0: s p s o so f mm. i f o l so folks <laughs> don't mm. be blame mm. don't blame me <laughs> <laughs> i t I tried <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: thanks for <laughs> thanks for thinking of
0: me anyway you can no you a l also w have a b. A book in, on, how, to, be, you, build, no, buy, how to buy,
2: responsibly.
0: how to buy responsibly. Oh. Yeah,
2: it's
1: called, I'm actually the co-author with Duncan Clark and it's part of the Rough Guide series. They're mostly known for travel books, but they do reference books for all sorts of things, including music. And it's called um, The Rough Guide to Shopping with a Conscience, which is about, it's not solely a guidebook. It's examining the issues involved in how we buy things and how they impact the environment, and um, social and economic justice throughout the world. So that was a pretty interesting area to get into, which most people who know me from my music books aren't aware of anything I've done along those lines. And how it came about was The Rough Guys is a British company, and they did a version for the United Kingdom, and they were looking to put it out in the United States, but everything is different in the United States as far as... Uh, Rules about how food is manufactured and what you can buy as far as fair trade and what kind of cars are manufactured if you want to buy the best, most energy efficient car and all that sort of stuff. So it was like writing, revising half the book and writing half new material because everything's different in uh, the United States.
0: Is. T R O U Rough Rough Guides the S A same as why as who do the C D, S, CDs? Yeah. Oh, those rough I mean, guide to um, the various, we have a lot of rough guide to CDs. Yeah, the world music. It's yes. <sighs> Is that the same company?
1: Yeah. I think most of, if not all of the CDs they've done have been for um, for world music because they have, I don't know when the mm-hmm. last edition was, but they had, you. you might have seen these. They had a rough guide to world music like 15 mm-hmm. years ago and then, that got so big that they split it into at least two parts. Like one covered, I hate to say, but I think it was like Asia and the Mm -hmm. Middle East, and the other covered Europe and North America and South America. So in conjunction with those guidebooks, they put out CDs of world Mm -hmm. music, and then they put out, like I think there was a Celtic music one and Brazilian one, but they haven't extended that to like other kinds of popular music, like in part... I don't want to speak for them because I never talked to them about it, but the rights issues, like if you wanted to do the rough guide to punk music or the rough guide to soul music, Mm. that stuff has so much more commercial exploitative value for Mm. the music media that I think it would be hard, just like say, okay, well, we'll have the soul music thing, we'll have a Marvin Gaye track and a Stevie Wonder track, and a James Brown one and Aretha Franklin, even. The very biggest labels have a hard time cross licensing that stuff.
0: We K E Keep Getting Them we get them from um Captain Fred right yeah one of our mm. DJs he's involved in Berkeley's um mm. public access not public Bra- access Bra- Berkeley Bra- Liberation yeah. Radio he um he puts out a list periodically of like his top the records that he used top 40 and then because he supports Lover mm. we can just pick what we like mm. from that and he'll send us copies so that's where we get a lot of them from him all right cool yeah do you
2: do
0: r e s t e r Restaurant? <laughs> do you do restaurant? I did do a. That's <laughs> <a laughs> I I did a
1: Beetle, Rare Beatles event, but. Uh.
0: <laughs> in your M U music <laughs> review. No, in your music, T R A travels B. Oh oh books mm. in your music travel book yeah, um what about that you're asking you're asking did he do do you i n
2: include, include mm.
0: restaurants
1: um no um mm. The, the book is out of print now but mm. i can it's still in some libraries it's called the rough guide to music usa mm. and some people think it's a travel book mm. and i it's hard to describe but i say 85 to 90% of it is a music history book it was kind of a mm. misapprehension i cover 20 regions of the united states and write about how the music in each region evolved, like New Orleans, Memphis, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, those were some of the regions, and have small reviews of some CDs that are the most essential. This part isn't very useful now because the book is 10 years old, but I had little reviews of um, record stores and clubs and local papers, which, Mm. of course, change all the time, but especially with record stores and local papers, Mm. a lot of them are going out of business. Mm. A lot of the clubs are still there. Some of them aren't. Mm. That was the travel aspect, Mm. and there would be a little travel aspect in that, like, you know, there might be a sidebar about the Rock and Roll Mm. Hall of Fame or um, the Sun Records studio Mm. that you can still visit, but it was actually mostly a, a history book. Even though it only goes up to the 1990s because there was only that one edition, that stuff is still valid. And there have been more CD reissues since then, but that stuff is still actually valid if anyone wanted to get that from the library. It, it did, and you can find it used online, but it did go out of print.
0: P. E. People could or should V I mm. video no V I visit
2: mm.
0: your your website
2: mm-hmm.
0: at two mm. two be. U, mm. I build. There. M, mm. music, knowledge, mm. music, L, mm. I. Library. Mm. They should uh-huh. visit your web. What to tell people what your website Thanks. is.
1: The website is richieancherberger.com. And a couple of people on radio stations have kind of scolded me for not spelling it out. So I hope this doesn't
0: seem unnecessary. It but yeah.
1: it's r i c h i e u n t e r b e r g e r dot com. That's my name. And if you just type in my name in most search engines, that's the first mm. thing that comes up my website. But what it has. It has basic information about my books, but it also has excerpts Mm -hmm. from the books, Mm -hmm. and it also has lists of some of the most interesting recordings that you'll read about in the books. So, for instance, I did a book about 60 of the most Mm -hmm. interesting cult rock artists of all time, and I did a Mm follow-up, which was just about... um, Interesting 60s cult groups that were a little bigger than the ones I've written about in the first book. And in pages about those books, you can click to these lists that have my personal favorites of like the most Mm. interesting unknown records of the 60s, most interesting unknown records of the 70s or cult records, most interesting Mm. obscure soul records. For The books I did on folk rock, I did a two-part history of 1960s folk rock. I have a lot of lists there. The 25 best folk rock albums, um, 20 overlooked ones, a few that led up to folk rock. um, That, um, K,
0: I, Killed, (laughs) That's What Killed You. When you got to the folk rock section, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Frank said he hit a wall; <laughs> he d- couldn't get. Yeah, there out. are a
1: lot of lists in there.
0: I, M, A, L, O, L, I. He's a list nut. He loves oh, lists. Okay. <laughs> Always making up his own lists.
1: And even for the Beatles and Velvet Underground books, like I have list of. Um, the very most interesting Beatles recordings, the albums that would be the best for them to put out if they went back into the vaults, and for the Velvet Underground, I have list of the most unreleased, best unreleased recordings, but also like the like 25 myths about the group that I kind of investigate and usually disprove in my book, and um, the most interesting or oddest Velvet Underground concerts, um, list of people who had a role in the Velvet Underground story that were behind the scenes. So, I hope that even before you buy the books, those will be of some interest to you
0: and i n t e r interviews in oh, yeah. interviews
1: for um especially for the earlier books I don't have a ton of interviews as far as like question and answer transcripts, but I have maybe about a dozen per book um, interviews that I did for the book, question and answer. So for instance, let's take one of the better known bands, The Pretty Things. They're actually pretty well, I never thought this would happen when I bought my first Pretty Things record in 1980. They're actually fairly well known now, at least in Berkeley and San Francisco, and I actually have lengthy question-and-answer interviews with the two most important members of the band, Phil May and Dick Taylor, who were their chief songwriters in the 1960s. And as another example of something you might find on there that you might not look at it and think, well, I should read this, there's uh, a lengthy interview with Shel Talmy. He's not a name that's really well known, but he produced the early Who and Kinks records and addition to a lot of other interesting British records. And um, was Arthur Brown on there? I kind of forget offhand. Yes, that's what Frank was reading, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, the Arthur Brown question and answer
0: is on there. Frank said it was really interesting. He was really sucked into it.
1: And the setting of that Arthur Brown interview, I mean, I can't convey that on a website, but that's interesting as well because... If you happen to have seen him, or even seen some film footage of him, you might think this guy's kind kind of crazy. What he does, this song with um, fire—his helmet's actually on fire when he does the song on stage—and he's like the nicest, most mild-mannered guy. I was able to interview him in his home in England, and he offered me this health food. Oh,
0: most of the C R crazy performers are like that in real in real life. Well,
1: some of them are are so crazy you don't want to be around them too much, but
0: Yeah. So you were saying he offered you health food?
1: Yeah. Um so you know, going from some of his albums and live performances, mm-hmm. you might think well, this guy's nuts, but he's not. He's a lot of what is done is kind of an act. Now, if you are, from all that I've read, I never met him, but Keith Moon really was a nut off stage a lot of the mm-hmm. time. It wasn't just wholly an image. But with a lot of performers, I would say David Bowie's probably similar in this respect. Don't assume that what you're going to see on stage is going to be what he's mm-hmm. like in private life.
0: I. S C R E A Scream Screaming Mm. J (laughs) Hawking and No Was A Mm. R O O Roof Mm -hmm. Roofer. No, yeah. R-O-O-F, no, R-O-O-T, root of 4, 4A, four Arthur Brown?
1: Mm. Oh, maybe, but, I mean, Arthur Brown never specifically cited Screaming Joe Hawkins to me, but I think Screaming J Hawkins and Little yeah. Richard, who's a lot better known, artists like that, just generally helps mm-hmm. set the mold for people who were really outrageous mm-hmm. on stage. A guy who's even a lot less well known than Arthur Brown, who I write about in my book, my Unknown Legends of Rock and Roll book, is Screaming Lord Such from England. And I think he definitely took a good amount from Screaming Jay Hawkins. I mean, start with the name, Screaming Lord Such. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But Screaming Jay Hawkins made the coffin and vampire gear part of his act and Screaming Lord Such made what he called a mix of rock and horror where he would kind of dress up like Jack the Ripper. But when I interviewed Screaming Lord Such, he was kind of coy about it because he was mentioning his influences and he mentioned like Little Richard. And I said, well, what about Screaming Jay Hawkins? And he was like, yeah, I liked him too, you know, really unemotionally. But he must have been an influence on screaming lord such
0: in 1 ni- 19 seven, the why oh you the you young young bloods mm. played at my c mm. college mm. g mm. gym <laughs> the young bloods at my college gym mm. but no. One came. Nineteen <laughs> seventy. Mm. Where? It's in the uh, Redlands, San Bernardino, mm. San Bernardino. That's
1: weird. Mm. Maybe they just didn't publicize it well because that was about one year after Get Together was a huge hit. Yes. Mm. Get Together came out. This is kind of technical. It came out in '67, but by a fluke, it didn't become mm. a hit until 1969. They used it as a um soundtrack to a, a public service ad that was really widely seen. So it became a hit two years later. But um I'm at a loss to explain why they wouldn't have got I mean, was Hi. it like was it like twenty people or two hundred or twenty people?
0: <laughs> More like twenty. Yeah. yeah.
1: I don't I don't yeah. know how that could have happened.
0: I N E never understood I never understood mm. that.
1: Were they good, though?
0: Mm. Yes. All right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs> That's true. Professionals. <laughs> mm.
0: I. Mm. I. Had. That. Mm. E. X. P. Experience. A a lot like Frank's always pulling out a story yeah. where he says oh yeah I saw them and nobody else was <laughs> there like even P A Patty Smith at the Long Branch um, yeah, I don't. I mean, we were in the front, so somehow we managed to get in the front. So I guess it wasn't that crowded. But it was a, like a little bar.
1: So like probably fifty to a hundred people, mm.
0: would you say? Oh,
1: more like fifty. Yeah,
0: I think so. Well,
1: that would've been yeah. great.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. That was why we were blown out. Right. I think part of it was because we didn't know. Like, it was just like, it was the FM radio. Somebody was like, they're talking about the show, and we were like looking for something to do. So we weren't like, didn't have any high expectations. Mm -hmm. It's like this little dive bar, and we're not expecting much. And it's like, whoa, you know.
1: And it's so rare, I mean, more so these days than back then, Mm -hmm. even, that you get to see not just, you know, yeah, that band's all right, but a really inspirational act in such. An intimate crowd right. because usually right. by the time you hear about right. them you can't exactly. do that
0: yes yes so that was probably a lot of why it had that impact on us yeah and it she was at her at her best well we saw her a couple of times throughout her career after that, and obviously it was never as good, you know, because it was like she was a star at that point, and it was a big place and all that stuff.
1: Did you see her by any chance, it was about six years ago, she played behind City Hall for free?
0: No, didn't see It was a benefit
1: for KPFA, they passed a hat and I gave some money, Uh but it was a benefit for KPFA, so it was Mm -hmm. like a free outdoor concert. Was it good? Yeah, yeah, I mean... It would have been better, sure, to see her mm-hmm. back then, but that's still the only time I've seen her.
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
1: <laughs> but it, she was pretty good. She was pretty engaged.
0: I. P. I. Frank pissed her off mm-hmm. one time. <laughs> well, she had a book. She had a mm-hmm. book signing thing. This also was like in the seven, late 70s. So it was like mm-hmm. just after she started getting famous, and she had this book signing thing in San Francisco at a bookstore. So we went. And Frank was like with his board And pointer He at the time he had like a Stick rather than a laser thing And when we wheel up to her she sees The board and she thinks like Ouija board and she wants him To tell her future And she wanted to know who she was going To marry and when she was going to get married And all that stuff and Frank wasn't Playing along and so that Pissed her off
1: <laughs> That's weird And if you had come up with the correct answer, right, right, <laughs> she would have said, "Well, you know, you're not, you're not taking this seriously. I'm going to marry someone else named Smith," <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and she and he will die. <laughs> uh, well, maybe wouldn't want to tell her all that part. Oh,
1: yeah, it. that would
2: have been pretty awkward. <laughs> <laughs> God.
0: And D. Mm. I. Dirk. Mm. Oh, Dirk Dirksen, who um, ran the Mabuhay during the period we were there. Um, years later, found that incident mentioned in a mm. newspaper article about <laughs> her, and he said, "Oh, that was Frank. <laughs> I remember that." And he clipped it out for us and sent it to us. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. If I so if I'd done the same kind of book for Patty Smith that I did for the Mm -hmm. Velvet Underground, that we might have gotten in the book
0: would have made it in there. I Mm. just Mm. had oh yeah. Um, we recently had Penny Arcade as a guest on the show, and um, so knowing her history with Patty Smith, because I guess Mm. they were an item back. At the beginning mm. of that, mm. the beginning of Patti Smith's career, and um, Frank put his Patti Smith mm. painting up. But apparently, they mm. didn't have a nice breakup. <laughs> so, <laughs> at one point, Frank said, "Oh, look! I put my Patti Smith painting," and she looked at it. and She went, "Uh," <laughs> and she told us some sordid tales <laughs> about her and Patti Smith, or mainly about Patti Smith. What? is Mm. your N. Mm. Tell everybody what your name is. Oh, no, that's not Mm. it. What is your Mm. N-E next? What's your next book going to be about?
1: I'm writing one now on The Who in the early 1970s when they worked on two projects for the most part. One was Lifehouse, which was a rock opera which never came out. The way Pete Townsend wanted it to come out. Some of the songs were used on Who's Next, but that album never really came out and or, was never done, I should say. And the other attempt to do a rock opera to follow Tommy basically was Quadrophenia, which did come out, which was completed. So I've been working on that for a while, and it's not going to be out for at least a year. I have other proposals which are being considered as we speak, and. I hope this doesn't seem too uh, too, uh, precious or something, but I never talk about a book until the first check clears because so Mm -hmm. much can happen in between a publisher saying they're interested and whether it happens or not. I'm not superstitious. It's just I don't even want to talk about it until it's done because people will start asking me, when's that book coming out? Oh, it's Mm. not happening.
0: Yeah,
1: It's um, a lot... There's a lot of stuff that goes into the book business that has nothing to do with writing. And a lot of it is negotiating a proposal from idea to actually having a contract where you can start working on it. But there are um, several other ideas that I'm hoping to do.
0: What? G? o o good hmm. n a, e new b a band bands bands what good new bands what does he does he um would he like to tell us about
1: this is going to sound horrible too, but I listen to very little new music um, mm it's just not my thing and it got to the point quite a while ago where the effort invested in checking stuff out was um it was such a low percentage i was just like i i don't want to invest the time in it so i'm not a good source for that um i'm much a woman artist who's cuz like i get stuff randomly sent to me through the mail that i don't ask for not too much don't get too excited and
0: <laughs> we and, us too
1: and and, and um one which I, I just put on, I was like, oh, whatever. Let's see what it sounds like. And her voice is really good. Jenny Muldaur, the um, daughter of Maria Muldaur, I ne- huh. would have never expected it. Mm. It's mostly um, covers of obscure rhythm and mm. rhythm and blues songs, like from the '50s, '60s. Mm. I mean, I mean, really obscure. Not like, oh, here's a James Brown hit. You don't hear as much as I feel good. It, they're they're really obscure. Mm-hmm. So first of all, it's mm-hmm. like, well, someone actually whether it was her or producer or both, they actually did dig through really deep stuff for unfamiliar material. And her voice isn't that much like Maria Moldauer, and it's uh, it's really good. Mm. So that's just something not obvious. I haven't seen that written about once, except for the review. I did it on All Music Guide.
2: Mm.
1: I'm sorry I don't have more names for you, but I didn't want (laughs) to fake it.
0: (laughs) I, mm. do, mm. H, mm. O, mm. T, hot, mm. hot wax. Frank does a show on Lover called Frank Spins Hot Wax, where he picks um, the, his favorite music of all the music we have yeah. and plays mm. it then on Tuesday nights. Does
1: that include uh, reissues too?
0: It's everything, anything, yeah. yeah. It is mm. like mm. your mm. S-I. Mm. It's like your site. Mm. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, because there's a section in the site mm-hmm. where it has like um, four times a year, like every... Spring, summer, winter, and fall. I post twenty reviews I've recently done for the All Music Guide. They're all reissues, but a lot of it is not the most obvious stuff. It just it's what I think are the most interesting things that came out. If there is a really major release, if it's Neil Young or Elvis Presley or something, and I think it's great, I'll put it on. But most of it's a lot more obscure than that.
0: M. I. Mikey. Make note, we'd like to check that out. (laughs) Oh.
1: So like if you go to, for anyone who's listening to, if you go to the site and click on music reviews, on the very first page of the site there are a bunch of bars, of names of sections of my site. If you click on music reviews, one of the lines on the page that it takes you to is like um, reviews of recent releases there are a couple other places in the site that you get to it from but that's the easiest way to get to it. Yeah. I'm not sure how much longer it's going to keep on going because I'm doing less work for all music guy but it has reviews going back about 10 years.
0: That's great. Is that uh are we going to wrap it up? Yes. So maybe before we leave you should tell everybody who you are again.
1: Yeah. I'm Richie Unterberger, and I'm a rock historian. I've done 10 books. Most of them are, are music books. And I said this earlier in the program, but if I'm. Several of the books are about unjustly obscure, underrated, overlooked, unappreciated artists. If I do write about major acts, I try to write about aspects of their career which are pretty obscure which I did with the Beatles I did a 400 page book on their unreleased recordings and film footage the unreleased Beatles My most recent book is the Vel- white light white heat the velvet underground day by day Now I got to say this is a little bit of a digression the Velvet Underground are considered a very very big band now at least you know in urban centers like this one where people are pretty hip I write about this in the introduction to my book. When I was just getting into them as a 17-year-old and 18-year-old, they were very hard to hear or find out anything about. And I had never heard them before I bought my first Velvet Underground album in 1979, and I didn't know anyone else who had heard them. So things have changed a lot. But even now, they're not nearly as big as The Beatles or The Who, who I just mentioned. So it is, on a, the very highest scale, a book about an under underappreciated cult band. And to just tell you a little bit about the book, there are excerpts on my website and the table of contents and things like that. It goes through their whole career and covers every notable professional activity they did, uh, every concert, recording session, and record reviews Mm -hmm. that they got at the time, not just later when everyone said, oh, now, yeah, we like them now. Mm -hmm. But as I do with all my books, like the Beatles book is kind of a reference book in that way too, it has a lot of information that hasn't been published before about the band, and it's very thoroughly researched, I hope, but I really try to write the books to make them fun to read. That's the most important thing, what the reader is going to get out of it. So I really emphasize the behind the scenes stories about the art, about the music's creation. It's not just they did this concert at this night, they did this concert this night, they mixed this record at this point. A lot of a lot of that information is in there, but there are a lot of first hand quotes from interviews I did, a lot of vintage quotes from articles and interviews which have never been reprinted or sometimes were never printed. A lot of information that hasn't come out yet, and I I hope present it in a way that tells the story of the band and how interesting and unusual they were, aside from just documenting what they did. Other books I've done, I did the two-part history of 1960s folk rock, Turn, 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 and Eight Miles High, and my two books about kind of cult rock musicians. The first is Unknown Legends (laughs) of Rock and Roll, and the other is a long title, Urban Spice Urban Spacemen and Wayfaring Strangers, Overlooked Innovators and Eccentric Visionaries of 60s Rock, where it has acts like the Pretty Things and Fred Neal and Tim Buckley, who we talked about, about 20 in all in that book, 60 in Unknown Legends of Rock and Roll.
0: Why I was a, no, S, S, T. Stuck. Last night on your website. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a warning to people. It's There's good stuff. Good stuff on the website. Lots to look at.
1: If you like the website, I don't like to make these things sound like a commercial, mm-hmm. but it only has a little bit of what's in the books. Mm-hmm. So if you like to check out what's in the books, there's a whole lot in there if you want to give it a try.
0: The... F, O, Folk, Mm. the Folk Rock, no the Folk, yeah the Folk Rock, L, I, N, N, Link, no, L-I-N, Links. Links, the, B, A, Mm. the B, E, best of lists. (laughs) No, the best of lists. G, got, G-O, (laughs) go, on, and on. Yeah, I like that where you you get (laughs) to it. If you're still reading, (laughs) here's yet another It it
1: even has a list of... um, (laughs) like the the most interesting bandwagon jumpers, you know, people who tried folk rock for a little bit, like uh, for even for a song or two that you might not have realized um, tried to do folk rock, like Glenn Campbell and Leon Russell and Captain Beefheart, some real oddities in there.
0: Yes. And the B-E-S-Best mm. F. Oh mm. folk
2: mm. that mm.
0: is not r mm. e really mm. folk
1: oh boy, what part of the list mm. was that uh, <laughs> you mean the best um the best albums was was it a list of albums or songs?
0: Well, there was that section where it said um, you because you were writing about the um, folk rock stuff from the sixties. Oh yeah and then you said, well there's this list of albums mm. that technically aren't the sixties oh, but see. they came out in nineteen seventy mm. and is that I don't know if that's what you're talking about, Frank. That was one I noticed. So you said so okay, even yeah. though this isn't technically the sixties these also are, I'm giving. I'm making this another list.
1: Yeah, because the, the two books, which are 600 pages altogether, so there's a lot of material in there, the idea is to cover the history of folk rock in the 1960s because that's when the form originated and when it was mm-hmm. at its best. But when music was so close to the chronological mm-hmm. 60s and very much in the style that was, what a lot of the music sounded like between 1965 and 1969. I did cover it mm-hmm. because I think people will be interested in that. That includes albums like say, Nick Drake's mm-hmm. Brighter Later, mm-hmm. 1970. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some very popular albums from 1970 I'm not really big fans of, but they're very natural outgrowths of the style like um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's mm-hmm. Deja Vu. Um, Neil Young's um, After the Gold Rush is a very good album in my estimation, it happens to be 1970. So I, I want to include stuff like that, and and there's a a, a pretty big list of uh, albums that very few people have heard of, even people who kind of try to keep track of these kind of cult rock things, like like Linda Perhex. Perx, and um, I don't even know if, if I can pronounce this na- guy's name right, but it's a pretty good album. Satcha Sai Matraya Kali, who was in a band, you're not going to believe this. He was in a band called The Penny Arcade. no relation to Penny Arcade the person much earlier they sound kind of like this is going to sound weird but like a mixture of Buffalo Springfield and the Monkees it's pretty good I mean the Monkees have some good stuff so like the Buffalo Springfield and the Monkees decent stuff Um, then this guy I still don't know the whole story Um, he kind of flipped out and traveled the world and did this spooky Skip Spence like Mm -hmm. solo record all his materials on one record um, I know a guy who's still trying to get the story of this guy who led this group named Craig Smith. He's been working on it for almost 10 years. And um, I hope it one day sees print because it uh, seems about one of the strangest stories of any cult artist ever.
0: P. We. R. R. A, ran out of I, N, ink. Printing your list last (laughs) night. The one list. Mikey said, just print the whole thing. I said, I think it's really long. It's like 40 pages. It was was, uh, the folk rock. The folk rock section is really long. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we ran out of ink. We ran the ink cartridge out. (laughs) Okay. All right. C, H, E, check it, check it out. Are your final words? Yes? Okay. So I guess we'll s- say goodnight.
1: Okay. Can Thanks for me having you? me on.
0: Yeah. Good night. Mm.